Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Tuesday morning, the 1st of February. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. Uh, reporting to what happened in Ivy House on the 17th of June 2020 when Ireland won a seat on the UN Security Council was published yesterday. It says that the result of the vote was at 10 past 9 and that a breach of social distance guidance occurred when staff came together physically to celebrate Ireland's successful election. This breach was captured in a photograph taken by the then Secretary General and I'm sure we're all very familiar with that photograph of Niall Burgess, that selfie with many of his staff behind him, staff who were not observing social distancing requirements at the time of the photo. Many had glasses of alcohol in their hands to toast the outcome while staff in the photo did not wear face masks. There was no public health requirement to wear masks in such a setting at that time. The then Secretary General posted the photograph on his Twitter account and subsequently removed it, acknowledging at the time that it should not have happened. The breach of social distancing guidance lasted approximately one minute. Most staff at that point either returned to their desks, stood discussing the outcome or prepared to depart the building. The then Taunishta and Minister for Foreign Affairs and Trade, Simon Coveney, watched the election from government buildings and participated in a press conference which concluded at approximately 5 to 10. That's 45 minutes after the vote came in and the photograph was taken. He subsequently returned to Ivy House and spoke to the staff there and thanked them for their work. He stayed approximately 15 minutes and the review team says it is satisfied that no social event in breach of guidance took place during his presence. Sinn Féin, however, says that there is now a serious question over the Minister's judgment. It has written to the Taoiseach and is calling for an independent investigation into all of this. Let's speak uh, to their spokesperson on finance, Pierce Doherty, who's on uh, the line. And uh, a very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. You're obviously not satisfied with Joe Hackett, the current Secretary-General's report into all of this. Why so and why do you want an independent investigation? Well, well thanks for having me on. So, look, 
before this report was published yesterday, we were very clear that, you know, you have to have an external um, investigation into this matter. You can have the General Secretary investigating his own senior and uh, junior staff uh, and indeed the role of the, uh, the, 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 the minister in relation to all of that. It's completely unfair in him. It won't provide uh, confidence in the report. And that's why last week we had written to the Tisha saying, look, it's the balls in his court. He's the leader of government. He needs to make sure uh, that this is transparent, that this is acceptable and that it is an external investigation into what happened within the Department of Foreign Affairs. Now, Sinn Féin aren't the, uh, the lone voice on this. Uh, there were other supporters at the Committee of Foreign Affairs who echoed uh, similar views and that's why Charlie Flanagan, the former Fine Gael Minister, uh, wrote to the, the, the Minister to express those views to him in relation to uh, the internal investigation and that it wouldn't meet the needs uh, according to, to members, some members of the Committee of, of Transparency and Accountability. But look, it's not just that. Mm. You've had people within the junior minister ranks, both within Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, who are saying that there needs to be an external investigation. And that's, that, that isn't what we've had. So, you know, what we, ha- what we know is that, uh, you know, this, this, this champagne gig happened um, on that night of the, the, the 17th. We know that the minister was aware of that on that night. We know the minister did nothing about it. We know months later when the minister was questioned about it, he did nothing about it. And we know that when public pressure became to a certain point that the minister was forced to act, what he did was uh, an internal investigation that excluded himself from ever being interviewed by the uh, the investigators or and excluded his role in relation to this uh, from being part of the investigation. Now, that is simply not good enough. Even Boris Johnson uh, has gone further than that in terms of their own investigation, in terms of their parties that they've been thrown. Uh, so this isn't this isn't up to the, 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 the standards that we all expect. OK, uh, but there are undoubtedly findings in this report that you would agree with. It says what happened was wrong, it caused offence, it inflicted reputational damage on uh, the department and undermined internal morale. What more would you like added to that? Well, we, we want to we want to know what the role of the minister was in relation to all of this here. So, if you read the report, uh, it the says that the minister the, was there for fifteen minutes. No, if you read the report, the author of the report, which is the current secretary general of the department, says that the minister wasn't uh, interviewed because it ex- it excluded them from doing so in the terms of reference. Terms of reference that the minister himself set down uh, for the secretary general. Like you couldn't make this up. Like as I said, the, the minister didn't want to act on this for a year and a half. The minister two weeks ago was saying, well, uh, I thought there was nothing to see here. The mm. minister's been forced to this and he wants to make sure that his role is not part of it. So this morning, for example, at Morning Ireland, we're still trying to glean new information from the minister as to what he knew, when he knew, did he see the picture and and why didn't he act? Now, this is a this mm. is one of the problems. The, 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 minister, the minister said this morning, he asked his accounting officer, the uh, current secretary general, to carry out an investigation into this. Uh, and uh, the current secretary General Joe Hackett is very clear uh, that he and his team are satisfied that the minister was not involved in anything that was a, a breach of COVID guidelines. But nobody, Michael, we're not suggesting that that is the case. Okay. What we're questioning here is the judgment of the minister who's directly responsible for that department, who was aware of this a year and a half ago and did nothing. When he was questioned by media and others, opposition parties, um, before the end of the year, 
He did nothing. He tried to bury this. When it was forced to actually act, he, he set up an internal investigation that his own colleagues in ministerial ranks were saying is insufficient. Uh, we and Sinn Féin have been calling out. And he excluded himself and his role in relation to this being actually scrutinised. But are you happy so with the investigation? Because you've called for an independent investigation. Are you happy with the investigation because there is a level of accountability? Niall Burgess uh, seems to be predominantly responsible for this, as the report says, by providing alcohol and organising a group photograph. Uh, he was largely responsible for facilitating the breach of social distance guidance that occurred. And he placed colleagues, particularly more junior ones, in a difficult position. It was uncharacteristic of him, but it was an error of judgment. He's been asked to pay €2,000 to charity. He's agreed to do that, and three other officials have uh, agreed to pay 1000 to charity as well. Uh, Is that not accountability and sanctions uh, uh, probably above and beyond what most would expect uh, in terms of civil servants being accountable? Well, first of all, I'm not calling into question the, the role of Joe Hackett at all in terms of his investigation. What I am saying he has been put in a terrible situation. No way should Joe Hackett, a secretary general of that department, be investigating senior officials that he has to work with day in and day out. It is absolutely inappropriate. It puts him in a terrible position, and that's why an external investigation would have to should have taken place. In my view, I would like to see a lot more detail. I would like to know how you know these four bottles of champagne appeared within minutes of the vote being cast. And apparently, there were gifts that were sitting in desks uh, and had been yeah, unopened. And all of the champagne yeah, flutes. Right. And, yeah. and all of the rest. So I would like to see some of, some of that detail. But again, this is about an external investigation. In no walk of life would you have a situation that was so serious, including the General Secretary says it is so serious, that you would decide to actually have just an internal okay, investigation. OK, but can I ask you, to be clear, so that I understand what your position is, is it that you're saying you accept that Minister Simon Coveney did nothing wrong himself personally, but you are calling into question his judgment for not acting on how others behaved. Is that right? Nobody has ever accused um, Simon Coveney of being present um, at the event when the mm. breach took place. Okay, but, but you're calling question into question Coleman, Coleman, Simon, Coveney, Simon Coveney's judgment about how he failed to act about events that occurred on the 17th of June 2020. And not only he failed to act on that night when he was made aware of it, didn't talk to his general secretary, didn't deal with it, didn't do anything about it, but actually failed to act for the year and a half after that. And the question really then arises as to, has he learned any lessons in terms of the Catherine Zabone saga? This is the same minister who was appointing his former colleague to make up job uh, in relation to a role in the UN. Would it not be an idea for you, Pierce Doherty, though, to get off your high horse? Are you not calling, uh, are you not the pot calling the kettle black here? Because you're talking about the minister failing to act on people's behaviour because of the way they behaved on the 17th of June. Uh, On the 30th of June, you weren't uh, being asked to act on how other people behaved, but there were people asking questions about how you behaved when you attended Bobby Story's funeral. And yeah, and you know that the, how many times has that been played out on national airwaves and local airwaves? And you know what the difference is, Michael? The difference is there was an, an independent investigation carried out by the PSNI in relation to that. Not an investigation carried out by Sinn Féin, but an independent investigation, and they found that we broke no laws in relation to that. Well, there'd be no point in asking your party leader to investigate it uh, or to uh, commission an investigation because your party leader was also there. I mean, it's widely accepted that what happened was in breach of COVID guidelines uh, and uh, the best advice that people were given. 
No, actually, look, read the investigation report. It's very detailed in relation to that. But the point is, there was an independent investigation. That's what we want here. We want an independent investigation. The role of the minister should be part of it, as the role of politicians in the North who attended that funeral were part of that investigation. And let me say this here. Attending the funeral of a friend who passed away is very different from a champagne celebration. Well, well hold on a second. Hold on a second now, because you've just insulted quite a lot of us, because quite a lot of us were not able to attend our friends' funerals. Absolutely, and I, I recognise that, but at that time... So it's all right for Sinn Féin, but not for no, ordinary no, people, is it? Michael, I've played, I, I, I've dealt with this on numerous occasions, but I'm saying at that time in the North, you were allowed a, a number of people to attend a funeral in the North. I was one of the people invited by the party, invited by the family, because I was friends of Bobby Story who attended that funeral. Um, there was an investigation into that. And uh, what I'm saying is there is a difference. At different times during the North, as in the South, there were people permitted in limited numbers to attend the, uh, the funeral, to attend uh, the, the, the ritual, to attend the, the, the mass. Um, and then at different times, they were restricted. And that is all played out in relation to the report that was done by the PSNI and the Director of Prosecutions. But the difference is, there was an external investigation. The difference is, there, there, there was, uh, they, this was looked at. What we don't have here is anything that, 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 that has looked at this from externally. And again, the role of the minister was not included here. The role of the minister was not included. And the, the issue for me is, for me, Fine Gael are far too long in power. Well, the so issue, this is, this is why the issue for a lot of people listening here is that we're talking about one thing on the 17th of June and another thing on the 30th of June, 13 days later. Uh, uh, on one hand, you're saying that Simon Coveney uh, should... Uh, be accountable for what other people did on the 17th of June and you're saying that there's nothing to see here for what you actually did yourself, personally, on the 30th of June. No, what I'm saying, Michael, is that was investigated by the PSNI. The PSNI's report there, they have made no findings that we broke any laws in relation to attending that funeral. That is the point that, that I'm making. There is no... So, look, you can, you can, we can play this all out again because for the last two years, Bobby Story and his family, who are still grieving for the loss of somebody, as, as are thousands of families during that period, you know, that funeral has been used as, as a way of trying to, you know, uh, harm Sinn Féin or so on and so forth. And that's what opposition parties will do. But I am making the point that somebody close to me passed away. Mm. I was invited as one of the 50 who attended mm. uh, that funeral. I attended that funeral uh, to pay my respects to Bobby Story. There is a difference, and it was investigated, and it was an external investigation by the party. What okay. we have here is but a so, year and a half later... So, somebody close to me, to somebody close to me died during COVID restrictions, and I'm sure that uh, I'm speaking for a lot of people listening to us this morning who will tell you that somebody close to them died during COVID restrictions, and they were prevented from attending the funeral. They watched it on the internet. And Michael, can I say this? Other people close to me uh, who died during COVID, I also was prevented from attending the funeral. Why? Because at different points, at different times during the COVID pandemic, there was different restrictions in place. And at that time, when I attended, those restrictions allowed me to be part of that uh, funeral. And, and that's the difference. So I, I just think, it, you know, it's really important because I understand the loss. I think that we're going to be dealing with this for a long time in terms of delayed loss, delayed grief as we come out of the pandemic. And that switch isn't there for a lot of people because so much has happened during that period and that particularly for people who lost their lives. Um, but there is an issue here. And the issue is that there is a lack of judgment within the Department of Foreign Affairs, uh, within the minister. And we've seen it time and time again. 
And it's it's this cosy, it's this kind of thing where you're too long in government, you think anything will go. So yeah, the, the Tonish is you know can leak a contract to his uh, his friend who's you know the head of a rival organisation in which the contract's involved. And you know we were told nothing to see here. Mm. There's a criminal investigation going on for the last year in relation to that. We have the the the, the minister for uh, for foreign affairs, you know, sorting out his 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 body that used to be in the in the department or in the government with him in terms of a making up job at the taxpayers' expense. And now we have a situation where rightly it's called out as a serious breach and the minister for a year and a half decided not to do anything about it until forced by the public, until forced by opposition and indeed until forced by some of his own colleagues in cabinet saying, look, this isn't acceptable, you need an external investigation, but we haven't got an external investigation. And when you set the rules and you say, look, I'll set up an investigation, but as part of that investigation, my role, my judgment, what I've seen, what I said on that night cannot be investigated. I don't think that that inspires public confidence. Piers Doherty, thank you very much indeed for joining us as always on the programme. Piers Doherty, I beg your pardon, Piers Doherty is uh, the Deputy Leader of Sinn Féin and his party spokesperson on finance. Michael Reed on LMFM. You may be telling yourself uh, that COVID is over and you may be going abroad. You might even be travelling today and you will require your digital cert, uh, but it may not be valid. Uh, Let's hear from Martin Skelly, who's Managing Director of Navin Travel and a member of the Irish Travel Agents Association, the ITAA. Good morning to you, Martin, and thanks indeed uh, for joining us this morning, the 1st of February. Uh, there's uh, changes uh, to European laws in terms of uh, the digital COVID certs. Perhaps uh, you'd outline to us what might happen if people haven't got their certs up to date. Okay, so, well, the um, digital COVID certificate, it was introduced last July, and it's been spoken about for nearly a year. It was introduced last July, and the objective of the digital COVID certificate was to streamline travel within Europe to make it easy for people to travel, and so that people who had been vaccinated could streamline and travel in, in, a, in a pretty... Um, easy way without um, without worry. So what we have at the moment, the digital COVID certificate shows a number of things. It shows proof of vaccination, proof of recovery or that you've had a test. So from the 1st of February this year, the digital COVID certificate is valid for travel within the EU countries and it's worked on the basis that the primary vaccination has a validity of nine months. And, current, and the booster vaccination currently has no time limit. So once you have vaccinated either and you're travelling within nine months or have had your booster, you get the EU digital COVID certificate and you're free to go. Okay, and the thing is that from today, uh, some people will find uh, that their certs uh, are out of date. Sure, uh, the certs, yeah, that happens now. It came in in July, so uh, the number of people who search are there, it's not huge, but they will be over the next period of, we'd say, over a few months. And that's what's happening. People search are expiring over the mm. next couple of months. So there's lots of time for those people to get the booster vaccination and then to get their new digital COVID certificate. And that's happening really quickly. Uh, I've had it myself and, you know, I had the... Um, uh, new certificate within within a couple of days. Okay, but if you don't have the new certificate, you'll literally be turned away at the gate of uh, the airport, will it? Well, people, you see, you have to make your plans in advance mm. too. So you know, be prepared is half the battle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, uh, and 
what we say to people is to check the requirements for where you're going. You get onto three sites and they're really good. You get onto gov.ie, you get onto the Department of Foreign Affairs, dfa.ie or Reopen Europa. Or indeed talk to us because anybody that's travelling with us, we're giving them up-to-date information on what they have to do. Now it changes all the time. Mm. So we're keeping people abreast of any changes that come into effect and for the destination that they're going to. Nobody is going to, well certainly nobody that's spoken with the travel agent is going to get without their information up to date because they're given all the information. All right. It's some time since we last spoke to you, Martin. Uh, at the time, I think you were facing into the abyss. Uh, I gather there's nothing but blue skies in front of you at the moment uh, and a, a lot of demand uh, for holidays. Oh, you know, uh, it's, it's, uh, yeah. it's such a change. So yeah. When we first spoke two years ago, as you said, yeah. we were absolutely looking into an abyss and everything that has happened in between almost saw that come to pass, but it didn't. We were out the other end. Uh, it's foot to the floor here at the moment. It's so busy. There's a fabulous demand for travel at the moment. Family holidays, special trips, bucket list trips, activity holidays, uh, everything and everything in between. Uh, we're almost back to the days of queues at the door. Right. OK. Uh, and what about prices? Are, are they soaring in line with demand? At the moment, prices are very good. Now, as demand continues, obviously they're going to spike a bit, and they're going to spike a bit during, you know, peak times, Easter, school holiday times, they're going to increase. But at the moment, there's really good value for money. Increases have been pared back and kept to a minimum, really. So we're seeing prices that aren't huge. The outer line probably saw in 2019. Prices are good. So, and we find people are booking early. Like, you know, people still have an eye for value for money. So, you know... What we're saying to people is be flexible if you can. Um, the long fellas, you know, travel from May to the end of September if you can. There's lots of value out there for uh, off-peak dates. Okay. All right. Well, I'm sure there's plenty of people uh, who have already got <laughs> their plans finalised uh, and have uh, their destinations uh, already booked uh, at this stage. Uh, but I'm sure there's uh, many people listening to us uh, this morning who are wetting their lips at the thoughts of it. Martin, nice to talk to you and nice to do so in better times. And thanks for joining us once again on the programme today. Martin Skelly is uh, the Managing Director of Navin Travel. He's also a member of the Irish Travel Agents Association, the ITAA. Now to the seizure of cigarettes said to be worth 3.2 million euros some 4.3 million cigarettes at Rossler Europort over the weekend. Benny Gilsonen is a spokesperson with Retailers Against Smuggling. A very good morning to you, Benny, and thanks for joining us on the programme once again. You're delighted that revenue seized this huge haul of cigarettes, but obviously you're concerned, as you always are, that this is a trade that continues this illegal underground cigarette trade. That's correct, Michael. Uh, thanks again for giving me the opportunity to speak to you. And we're only at the start of the year, and already this is the third seizure, albeit that the other two are relatively small in comparison to this one. And, you know, if I give you just a few figures uh, from 20 to 21, in 20, we had 47 and a half million cigarettes seized in 21 we had 60 million cigarettes seized in the same period uh, for tobacco we had 31 tons in 20 as against 33 and a half tons of tobacco in 21 so it tells you the type of volumes mm. that are coming in 
uh, via Dublin Port or Rossley Airport. Like mm. It sounds like an awful lot. Uh, I, I'm not sure how to uh, weigh that up uh, in my mind. What, what what does it mean in reality uh, in relation to the cigarettes that are, are sold legally? Uh, what kind of a percentage are we talking about uh, uh, when you talk about uh, the cigarettes that are sold or seized illegally? Well, we are, to- we are told that at the illegal cigarette market is running approximately between 11 and 13 percent okay. as, as against the, the legitimate ones. Mm. So if you take into consideration those figures, Michael, that tells you like, what the illegal market is worth. If they can afford to lose that volume of cigarettes and tobacco mm. and still be able to bring them in yeah. to this country. You, you, you'd probably think that uh, whilst that shipload is being seized, uh, there's a, another shipload following on, on its heels. Uh, that's three, 3.2 million, that was the estimated retail value. I take it that's uh, at the price that you'd sell them at. What's that, 14, right. 14, 15 euro a packet now? It's roughly 15 euro per packet we, we sell it. Uh, now, like over over the Christmas period, uh, around my own area, Michael, they, the sellers were actually selling them at eight euro a packet. Right. In the last week or so, they have started to drop them back down to between five and six euro a packet. Right. So, like it it, it tells you it tells you the differential that's between the legitimate one and the smuggled one. Mm. Well, a third of the price. No wonder the market uh, is uh, there for these illegal cigarettes and that uh, the demand is as high as 10 to 13%, I think you said. That's correct. That's correct. And uh, you see the, the, what has happened now since uh, Brexit with the level of uh, traffic coming via Europe rather than via England, it's mostly coming in through Rosslair instead of Dublin Port. So there's far there's a, a far greater volume of uh, traffic coming into Rosslare and these people are going to use that uh, port mm. uh, to get their stuff in uh, as uh, they were in Dublin. You know, and this, this is it. The figures that I have given you, Michael, are at times when there was very little travel, when, you know, we didn't have the suitcases coming in at the, at the airport. You know, now we're back travelling and we're going to see uh, an increase in that element of it also. Mm. I'm sure we will, uh, especially if uh, you can pay a third of the price uh, especially, uh, and when it's something that you're addicted to and uh, you feel that you've no choice but to uh, get your 20 cigarettes, whether that costs €5 euro or €15 euro, uh, is a, a another thing. Uh, and you can imagine why people would be tempted to spend 5 and save 10 uh, But your argument is uh, to reduce the cost uh, of cigarettes uh, to those people in the shops. There's a lot of people, of course, who would object to that. No, no, no. We we have never advocated, Michael, for the for the price of cigarettes to be reduced. But we what we want is penalties to be brought in and made more severe for people who are selling them. You know, like if 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 people can get away with selling them and get a slap on the wrist, you know, because of the fact that ninety nine point nine percent of the time that any of them are caught with cigarettes, they're going to be caught with no more than two or four hundred at a time. Now, like, it's very difficult for the judge to turn around and hit somebody with a huge fine, having been caught with a small an amount of cigarettes as 200. You know, when he or she sits down and says, well, so what is it? It's only, it's only 200, it's only 400 cigarettes. Mm. But they, are, they are being reimbursed every time they sell a packet 
that are being reimbursed. And our politicians are asleep at the wheel. They're doing nothing. Absolutely nothing. It's, it, most of them are of the opinion that there is no such thing as smuggling of cigarettes coming into this country. Okay. And, that's, that, and, and that, that has been said by some of them. You know, that it's a non-entity. Yeah, and you want it to be made a, a serious uh, offence. I want it to be made mm-hmm. very, very mm-hmm. serious. Like, you know, like, you know, not only do, do we not know what's in these cigarettes, you know, they're continually telling us as legitimate retailers selling a legitimate product that what we're selling is bad for your health. So why not come out and say, well, these smuggled cigarettes that are, are 10 times worse or they're not bad for you at all. Okay, Benny, we'll leave it there. And thank you indeed uh, for making that point with us on the programme this morning. Benny Gilson uh, is spokesperson for Retailers Against Smuggling. Let me bring you some of uh, the comments uh, coming to us uh, this morning. A few people in touch after our interview with uh, Pierce Doherty of Sinn Féin. Uh, Somebody saying uh, that what happened during the COVID lockdown uh, and uh, COVID restrictions was cruel. Ten people were allowed uh, to funerals. Uh, it went from ten, 10 to 25 uh, and then to 50. And we all had to adhere to this uh, cruel situation. Lillian touched saying Pierce Doherty makes a big deal uh, out of everything. Pat McDade says, I hope uh, journalistic integrity prevails on your show. Um, can you ask Pierce Doherty if he's not being a tad hypocritical, seeing how Sinn Féin, some 10 days after the Foreign Affairs event, bust thousands of supporters into West Belfast to line the streets for the funeral of Bobby Story. Pierce and Mary Lou were prominent. No social distancing and very few masks were evident. Pot, kettle, black, says Pat McDade. Paddy Duffy says, I think Pierce Doherty is being unfair to the ex-Secretary General. Why should the poor man be held to account when nobody else in this country is held to account, says Paddy. Uh, And uh, somebody else says, uh, would you get on with real news rather than and the report into what happened in the department on that evening. Thank you to everybody who has been in touch with us so far today. Michael Reed on LMFM. Yeah, the United Trade Union, which represents a lot of people working in uh, the service industry, has written uh, to uh, the Thornish uh, about the legislation uh, which will uh, tell people uh, what will happen when they leave tips in restaurants and so forth and indeed it'll give guidance uh, to those who are working in the industry in terms of what should happen with uh, that money. Uh, We're joined once again by Julia Marciniak who's the hospitality coordinator with the United Trade Union and a very good morning to you Julia and thanks uh, for joining us on uh, the programme. You have some uh, concerns uh, that you've been raising uh, with uh, the Thonish Uh, in particular about a mandatory service charge that would have to apply uh, in all restaurants and that could dissuade people from tipping altogether. Well, you see, like it do not need to be applied. It's uh, it's uh, up to um, um, to up to business to uh, apply the mandatory service charge if they want to apply it or not. But, well, uh, definitely that's going to be additional cost uh, um, for the customers and it might be a little bit misleading if it comes to prices of items uh, as well but you know if the cost of, of dining out gonna go up mm. um, customers are less likely to, to leave a tip for the workers and like you know like in, in general I think then Tanash uh, improve uh, the version of the bill significantly 
So we have some progress and, you know, now employers are not um, allowed to take any any money from the credit card tips uh, um, uh, left for workers or cash tips. So that is significant progress. Mm-hmm. But definitely mandatory service charge, it's, um, it leaves us with a lot of concerns and um, uh, but as well, like the word mandatory in there, it's crucial mm. because then optional service charge, because if you look on the restaurants uh, to in the restaurants menus, most of the service charges up to now, they were optional. Yeah. So yeah. now they and I think from a customer's point of view, a lot of people think that when there is a service charge that the tip is included in the price. So there's no need to tip on top of what you're paying. Exactly. Mm. So that is uh, that is misleading. Like, well, there is another part of the legislation. It basically will require um, uh, businesses to put the tip policy, including what is uh, going to happen, uh, how the mandatory service charge are spent and how they distribute it. It's any part of them. Mm. So that so the manager, the manager might get more than the dishwasher or than the waiter. Um. Like with the mandatory service charge, the employees do not need to get anything at all. Okay. Basically, mandatory service charge, it's treated as uh, extra income for the business. So okay. if the business wish to give some money for the workers, like fair pay mm. to them, because that's clearly what the customer uh, in, in, in intention uh, is. But uh, if they don't and they want to spend that money on the electricity bill or... Yeah, or put it, put it in their bank account. <laughs> or putting it in their bank account. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. So yeah. No, I'm sorry, I misunderstood. You, but, but, but you are concerned about how the tips will be divvied out and that some people will get more than others uh, and they might get a, a greater share of the tips uh, because uh, they're in more senior positions. Uh, managers and so on might get uh, more money than uh, those who are are working on the floor yes we get our suggestion there because uh, there is a list of uh, um, of factors uh, for the w educator officer to take into consideration and one of them is a length of service and uh, and qualification of the staff so clearly it might be a head chef on way higher wages so we're suggesting then in that consideration, it should be the main principle of the tips, then mm, customer leave those tips for those on low pay, mm. which are really in need of uh, extra um, extra income to, to meet their every, everyday uh, spendings, because uh, um, clearly, especially in Dublin now, it's one of the most expensive cities uh, in Europe. Mm. So it's very important for those people to to meet their everyday costs, it's not to live in uh, in luxury. It's just yeah. To, well, a lot of the people working uh, in uh, the service industry, I think, uh, would be on minimum wage. Not all, of course, but quite a, a few would. Uh, would there be an argument uh, to stop the practice of, of tipping uh, and introduce a sectoral wage uh, rate for those uh, who uh, work uh, in restaurants and pubs and elsewhere? Uh, I like sectoral wage. It's uh, it's extremely important, and definitely as a union, uh, going to push uh, for for that change because like we really get uh, people like in our membership each spend working in hospitality all their lives, uh, 
So they get a significant amount of experience and qualification and they are still on minimum wage. There are people on managerial and supervisor positions each are below living wage. It is disgrace as well because they get so much responsibility and they still not even paid a living wage. But I get as well concerns if it comes to I and Unite get the concerns if it comes to enforcement of that law. Because now the burden of enforcing the law is on an employee. Employee, it doesn't know most likely that that law going to come in, into place. Uh, it, um, those employees are often very young and uh, mm. as well there is a significant um, amount of and, migrant and workers. Yeah, and I think when it comes to young people, we're about migrant workers, uh, but when people are, are young and living at home and living with their parents, uh, it's quite often dismissed uh, as being important uh, to pay them the type of pay that you would pay to others uh, who don't have that household income, the combined income, uh, and uh, all that goes with that uh, if you're living with your parents who are paying for your accommodation uh, and uh, other things for that matter. Yeah, but you're still doing the work, and the work should be recognized. And, you know, those people create tremendous amount of profit for the employer. And that's, you know, like, well, maybe somebody from uh, Richard, like, that, that's, this is just a poor excuse, you know, that is just a poor excuse for exploiting those people. Mm. And, you know, assuming that all oh, this person is young and their parents are able to support them. Well, okay. And what would you like to see the living wage uh, for people working in hospitality? I will say, I will. I, I think then minimum wage should be equal to living wage, to, to be fair. I don't think then anybody should be paid for working full time and live in poverty because like anything below living wage, it's living in poverty. Okay. All right, Julia, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thanks uh, indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Uh, that's uh, Julia Marciniak, uh, who's uh, the hospitality coordinator with uh, the United Trade Union. Now, we were talking with uh, Benny Gilson of Retailers Against Smuggling and uh, the cost of cigarettes and uh, the cigarettes uh, that are smuggled in. €15 Euro a pack, smuggled cigarettes, €5 Euro a pack. A text from somebody who says that fella is more interested in selling his €15 Euro cigarettes than getting getting people to stop smoking. Not the right motive. Hope he doesn't sell beer because that's next on the agenda for the smugglers. Thanks uh, indeed for that. I think uh, there could be a point with that. Maybe smuggling, maybe just travelling across the border, particularly with uh, the minimum unit pricing that we've seen introduced uh, already this year and already how people are going north uh, to do their alcohol shopping and undoubtedly other shopping while they're there. Somebody else, uh, Peggy in Dunleer, asking how do you get uh, your travel pass? I take it that's uh, the COVID cert. Uh, you should get it automatically uh, once you get your vaccination, Peggy, uh, either in the post or on your phone, depending on your setup. But thanks indeed to everybody who has been in touch with us so far today. If you haven't made contact with us and you would like to comment on the programme, as always, we'd love to hear from you. You can text us or phone us, email us, or get in touch with us on social media for that matter. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, as you've been hearing, uh, the government is expected to, to approve a proposal from the Minister for Education, Norma Foley, uh, for uh, the Leaving Cert exams uh, to take a, a traditional written format uh, this year. Let's uh, speak uh, to the Labour Party spokesperson on education now, Aon O'Reardon. A very good morning to you and thanks indeed uh, for joining us on the programme today. Morning, morning. You're, you're not happy about this. 
Well, I'm not. And look, I'm t- talking to my, my Labour Party colleagues, um, including your local TD there, Je- Jed Nash, about the number of emails we've gotten over the course of the Christmas and, and indeed January from students who are absolutely at the end of their of their tether. It's it, it's it's torturous um, for them. They have such anxiety about what they've been through. They've missed out so much in fifth year. They're now looking at a situation where. Their teachers are out, they're getting COVID and they're, and they're out of school and they felt that this would be reflected with a level of understanding from the Department of Education that a hybrid model, which they have been con- campaigning for, uh, would be agreed to. And now we have leaked reports last night, which again, par for the course when it comes to the Department, unfortunately, but again, disappointing um, that the Minister today will will um, propose to Cabinet that a traditional Leaving Cert model will be um, will be reverted to. And I, I, I just find that very disappointing. Mm. I think there's far too many voices in education who are welded to the traditions. Uh, I think anybody who has been to the Leaving Cert, and I was there uh, in, in 1994, are still, you know, <laughs> hasn't changed that much. It's a very brutal... Uh, exam uh, is something that needs to be radically reformed. Why so many people in education are so married to it is it, it, beyond my comprehension. But certainly, if any senior government minister was to walk into a six-year group today, look at the masks on, look at the windows open, look at the number of teachers who are out, and then pretend that additional leaving cert can continue, uh, I think they're divorced from the reality of what's happening day-to-day in schools. All right. Uh, is that the case, though, in coming to this uh, decision? Because, uh, as you say, uh, there's a, a popular consensus uh, that there should be a hybrid model this year. But is the minister not actually showing leadership uh, and that instead of uh, making decisions by committee, instead of uh, taking a popular decision, she's making what she believes to be the right decision, one that is fair to all? Well, in all my commentary on this, I haven't criticised the Minister once when it comes to the Leaving Cert. In fact, if anybody wants to go back to the record of my contributions to all debates, um, I've been very complimentary of the Minister, this particular Minister, and how she's dealt with the Leaving Cert. She inherited uh, the assessed grade process in 2020. She changed it at my asking because I asked for school profiling to be taken out of the equation. She did that. She listened last year. She listened to the students when other representatives were walking off the table. She stood firm. She listened to the students. She did the right thing. Unfortunately, this year, uh, for whatever reason, she hasn't been as successful. So I, I'm particularly disappointed because I, I, I actually had was expecting more. Now, look, there were there were people out very quickly against the hybrid leaving search. The teacher unions were uh, were, 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 were were amongst those voices. However, when you listen to what the the, the children's ombudsman has said about the mental health of young people, listen to what the national. Uh, Council of, of National Association of Principals and Deputy Principals are saying, and it isn't the actual individual students themselves, their yeah. parents. It's quite clear that this situation isn't horrible for them, and nobody can guarantee between now and June that more teachers won't be out because we're still in a pandemic with thousands of cases a day, that the students themselves won't be out, and no recognition really has been given to how disruptive this has been. And I think this goes to a wider discussion we need to have about education. Why do we never put the student at the heart of it? Why do we never put the child at the heart of it? Why do we always listen to others rather than what is best for the individual students? I, I, I find it desperately disappointing. I know that mm. this argument about seventy-five percent of yeah, the students, but that's the thing. If you were to take the popular, if you were to take the popular decision, uh, the seventy-five percent of the students that you talk about uh, would be. Uh, happy with the hybrid model, uh, but 25% uh, would feel it would be unfair on them because they don't have a, a junior cert uh, to be taken yeah, into account in calculating the grade. So where's the solution? 
my issue is that the departments are, you know, talk to any minister, any former minister in the Department of Education, and they will say that they are a particularly difficult uh, department. They are absolutely conservative. They are, they are, they are not interested in change. They are welded to, to the traditional ways that things are done, and they would have found the last two years like uh, as being a period that they just had to couldn't wait to get back to, to the ordinary. But the ordinary just this year is not. Uh, the, the lived reality of students, and yes, twenty five percent of the students uh, this year don't have a junior cert. But we, mm. you know, for all these arguments about things being impossible, things have always been improved. You know, have been uh, presented as being impossible until we find a solution. We can, mm. within the competence of, of individual teachers, within those in the education partnership, within the department, found solutions. Okay. So I just don't believe that the department even wanted to find a solution. Okay, do you, they do, had this in their minds from, the, from day one. Do you, do, do you have a, a proposed solution? Because, uh, I, I mean, I think it can be argued the other way that uh, if you go with the traditional written Leaving Cert exam this year, uh, look to reform of the Leaving Cert in future years, uh, but uh, in the time that's allowed that you give everybody the same advantage, give everybody equal disadvantage, if you like, that you've got a level playing field. Everybody has to sit the exam. Nobody is treated differently than anybody else. Well, no, what we're actually decided to do is that we're going to disregard the fact that students were out for a number of months when they're in fifth year, disregard the fact that they've gone through a huge level of disruption and hope, hope that between now and June, not too many teachers are going to be out. That's the current official position, which is ridiculous. And as I say, go into your sixth-year group in any school in Loud or Meaders or surrounding counties or in my own constituency in North Dublin, mm. walk into a sixth-year group, look at their masks on, look mm. at the windows open, mm. count the number of teachers who are out, oh, count yeah. the number of yeah, students yeah, who are out, yeah, yeah. and then mm. say, do you know something, we just need to go back to normal. Yeah. We can find solutions to these things. The department but what are they? And, I, and I mean, I'm not arguing with those points. Uh, I mean, they're all very valid points, and God knows our young people, in particular exams uh, students, have been through it. Uh, uh, there's no argument with that. Uh, but they're all at the same disadvantage, is the point that I'm putting to you, uh, and that they all have to sit the exam. So if it's unfair on one, it's equally unfair on them all. So they're all in the same boat well, when no, it comes it's, to well, results. No, because, because some, one student maybe have an advantage of a teacher not getting sick, whereas other students will not have that advantage. One student may actually not get sick themselves, but can't be guaranteed, uh, or, or another student won't have that situation. One student may be extremely diff- uh, worried about having somebody in their family who has an underlying condition and getting COVID is much more serious than another uh, another student. It is not a laying, level playing field, and I would suggest that it has never been a, le- a level playing field. The leaving cert is profoundly unfair, particularly for those uh, of a disadvantaged background. But however, I, I, I am just convinced, absolutely convinced, that the department went into this process knowing what they wanted, knowing a traditional leaving cert was what they preferred. They are a conservative department. They don't like change. The minister, unfortunately, has not been in a position to change uh, the situation. The teacher unions didn't help. And at the end of the day, we have a situation where the students are going to be let down. We have to take from this, if this is the way it's going to be, uh, way to, to, to take the energy from this campaigning that the young people have been doing and to make sure in coming years that this is the last year of the traditional Leaving Cert because we cannot continue with it. It's brutal, it's unfair, it doesn't reflect the young people's abilities and just because it has always been this way 
is no reason for it to always be this way. Okay, and it's not ideal. I'm sure there'll be lots of questions about this, and I'm sure the minister will tell you it's not ideal, uh, and every government spokesperson for that matter. But having said that, as unideal as it is, uh, that is uh, the situation. It looks like it's going to be a traditional written exam for the class of 22, who will have to knuckle down now, won't they, and uh, generate uh, energy in terms of coming to terms with that and forget about the campaign. Well, I think, uh, look, I think it's disappointing. I, I'm going to discuss with my parliamentary colleague, uh, colleagues uh, at 12 noon when, when we have our meeting of the Labour Parliamentary Party, including uh, Jed Nash, to discuss the fallout from this and to see what happens next. I think there does have to come a period where we have to move on and not have a, a heightened level of expectation from students that things will change. They need to, you know, um, to move on to a situation where they focus on the leaving. So it's not going to help if people like myself are whipping up anxiety between now uh, and June, but we want to be in a position to support students uh, from June and beyond uh, to keep their campaigning, to keep them, uh, you know, tuned in to, uh, to, the, to the political discussion. But there are people within government and, and government senators and government backbenchers who are also advocating for a hybrid model. I, I think what we need to hear now from is some of the minister, because unfortunately, when it comes to being front up and uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and giving explanations, she hasn't been as forthright as she should be uh, as a leader in education. And unfortunately, between last night and this morning, we still haven't heard from her. Hopefully, we'll hear from her later today. OK, I think we'll hear a lot from Norman Foley throughout the day. But thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Uh, that's a Labour Party spokesperson on education, Aon O'Reardon. Michael Reed on LMFM. There was skin and hair flying in Westminster yesterday following uh, the Sue Gray report in uh, to uh, the COVID parties and questions that were asked of uh, the Prime Minister. The most uh, surprising question uh, that was put to Boris Johnson came from his predecessor, former Prime Minister Theresa May. The COVID regulations impose significant restrictions on the freedoms of members of the public. They had a right to expect their Prime Minister to have read the rules, to understand the meaning of the rules, and indeed those around them to have done around him to have done so too, and to set an example in following those rules. What the Grey Report does show is that Number 10 Downing Street was not observing the regulations they had imposed on members of the public. So either my right honourable friend had not read the rules, or didn't understand what they meant, and others around him, or they didn't think the rules applied to number 10. Which was it? Well, did Theresa May ever cause such a stir before? Perhaps not, but the Speaker of the House, Lindsay Hoyle, was very interested to hear how the Prime Minister would respond to the former Prime Minister. It's a very important question. I want to hear the answer even if other people don't. Indeed, Boris Johnson did answer, but he was never going to answer in line with how Theresa May had framed the question. It wasn't that he either didn't understand the rules or else thought that they didn't apply to him and his staff. Uh, no, Mr Speaker, that is not what the uh, Grey Report says. Uh, it is not what the Grey Report says. Uh, but if she, I, 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 I suggest that she waits to see uh, the conclusion of the inquiry. Robust debate in the House of Commons. But it didn't end there. Theresa May's unforgiving attack on Boris Johnson was only the warm-up for what was yet to come. Can I say it's a pleasure to follow the former Prime Minister and perhaps her behaviour in office, like many that went before her, was about dignity, about the importance of the office, of respect, 
of truthfulness. And the Prime Minister will be well advised to focus on those that have not dishonoured the office like he has done. This is Ian Blackford of the SNP. We stand here today faced with the systematic decimation of public trust in government and the institutions of the state and at its heart a Prime Minister a Prime Minister being investigated by the police. A shocking situation perhaps for British voters striking when you think how long Gardaí have been investigating the behaviour of an Irish Prime Minister Leo Bradker. There at least they have a report. So here we have it The long-awaited Sue Gray report. What a farce. It was carefully engineered to be a fact-finding exercise with no conclusions. Now we find it's a fact-finding exercise with no facts. So let's talk facts. The Prime Minister has told the House that all guidance was completely followed. There was no party. COVID rules were followed and that I believed it was a work event. Nobody, nobody believed them then. And nobody, nobody believes you now, Prime Minister. That is the crux. No ifs, no buts. He has willfully willfully misled Parliament. Ah, no, hold on. You can't say that. The rules are the rules and that is not allowed. You cannot say that the Prime Minister misled the House. It's bad enough... Order! Inadvertent misled the House would be acceptable. Misled the House is not acceptable. Withdraw inadvertently. The Prime Minister inadvertently told the House on the 8th of December that no parties had taken place and then had to admit that they had. It's bad enough, Mr Speaker, that the Prime Minister's personal integrity is in the ditch, but this murky business is tainting everything around it. It is our intention to submit a motion instructing the Prime Minister to publish the Great Report in full. Well, the Prime Minister obey an instruction by this House to publish as required. Mr Speaker, amidst allegations of blackmail by Tory whips, the members opposite have been defending the indefensible. Wait for the report, we were told. Well, here it is, and it tells us very little, except it does state that there were failures of leadership and judgment by different parts of number 10. It states that some events should not have been allowed to take place. That is the Prime Minister's responsibility. If there is any honour, any honour in public life, then he would resign. Where is this? And he laughs. And the Prime Minister laughs. We ought to remind ourselves in this House that 150,000 plus of our citizens have lost their lives. Family members that couldn't be with them. And that is the sight that people will remember. A Prime Minister laughing yeah, at our public. I extend the hand of friendship to all those that have sacrificed. I certainly do not extend the hand of friendship to the Prime Minister, who is no friend of mine. Yeah. Where is the shame? Where is the dignity? Meanwhile, the police investigation will drag on and on. 
Ian Blackford is obviously very annoyed. Many are very annoyed like him with Boris Johnson and Blackford gave many reasons for feeling the way he does. Trust in government and the rule of law is ebbing away. The litany of rule breaking, the culture of contempt, the utter disdain for the anguish felt by the public who have sacrificed so much. What the public see is a man who has debased the office of Prime Minister, shrinked responsibility, dogged accountability and blamed his staff at every turn, presided over sleaze and corruption and tainted the very institutions of the state. In short, Mr Speaker, this is a man... Well, they can laugh. They can laugh. But the public know. The public know this is a man they can no longer trust. He has been investigated by the police. He misled the House. He must now resign. Did he say that again? He couldn't have. He couldn't have said he misled the House again, did he? Uh, Blackford has already been told. You can't say that Boris Johnson misled the House. You'll have to withdraw that last comment. Mr Speaker, I gave the evidence of the 8th of December. Order, order. You're going to have to withdraw misled. Mr Speaker, the Prime Minister has misled the House. Unless you withdraw, I'll have to stop and that's not good. Just withdraw the words. I am standing up for my constituents that know that this Prime Minister has lied and misled the House. Give me the paper. Give me the paper. Inadvertently misled. I'll give you one more chance. As leader of the SNP, I don't want to have to throw you out. I'm going to give you this chance. Please. Please to power. That man has misled the House. Shut up. I'm sorry it's come to this. And I'm sorry that the leader of the party has not got the decency to just withdraw those words in order that this debate can be represented by all political leaders. Would you like to inadvertently? If the Prime Minister has inadvertently misled the House, then I will state that. Right, we're going to leave it at that. All right, forgiveness for Ian Blackford. Comical scenes, chaotic scenes. And indeed, uh, political cover. He wasn't allowed to say that the Prime Minister misled the House, but saying inadvertently misled the House gave him uh, that political cover that he, he needed and he wasn't asked to leave the House. And it was a statement that was certainly good enough for Boris Johnson. Mr Speaker, I, I'm grateful to the uh, Right Honourable Gentleman for withdrawing uh, what he just said because he was wrong then and... Uh, he, I'm afraid, is wrong in, the, in, in his, his analysis. And I, I, I apologise, as I've said, for uh, all the suffering that people have had throughout this pandemic and, uh, and for the anger that people feel uh, about uh, what has taken place in, in Number 10 Downing Street. But I've got, I've got to tell the, uh, the Right Honourable Gentleman that for much of what he said, uh, his best course is simply to wait for the, uh, for the inquiry to be completed. Right, uh, that's uh, Boris Johnson, the British Prime Minister, defending his behaviour uh, and happy, it seems, uh, that Ian Blackford had withdrawn his allegation uh, that uh, the PM had misled the House. 
Uh, but those chaotic scenes then turned to comical scenes. It's sort of like a slow car crash, isn't it? And I think you can guess what's coming next uh, because I suppose he did say that he had inadvertently misled the House and then he was asked, did he withdraw the first allegation that he had misled the House and changed it to inadvertently misled the House? Is that what he did? Had he actually withdrawn his statement? I take it the Honourable Member has withdrawn it, the right Honourable Member. That the Prime Minister may have inadvertently misled the House. But no. Should, order. To help me, to help the House, you've withdrawn your early comment and replaced it with inadvertently. It's not my fault if the Prime Minister can't be trusted to tell the truth. Under the power given to me by standing order number 43, I order the Honourable Member to withdraw immediately from the House. It's all right, we don't need to bother. All right, so he was about to be thrown out of the House, but he left the House before he was thrown out of the House. Uh, So the Speaker of the House saying there was no need to bother. Comical scenes from Westminster, but a very serious situation, it would seem, for the British Prime Minister, Boris Johnson. Now let's uh, go to some of the comments uh, coming to us. Uh, Thanks uh, to our caller in uh, St Mary's uh, Diocese uh, School in Drogheda, uh, I'm absolutely distraught this morning, having heard last night's news about the Leaving Cert. It's a disgrace that the Minister has not listened to us, the students, the parents, the principals and indeed the Ombudsman for Children. Uh, and uh, they should be ashamed, or Norma Foley should be ashamed of herself, uh, says our caller. Thank you indeed uh, for texting us uh, this morning. Paddy Duffy texting too saying they should leave Boris Johnson alone. He's doing a great job. In fact, Paddy says, I think he should get at least one more term so he can finish it off. Uh, And he has brackets uh, England then. That's uh, finish England off, in other words. Thank you indeed, Paddy, uh, for your text to the programme as always today. Michael Reed on LMFM. The rate of homelessness in uh, the country continues to be staggering. There was a a slight dip in uh, the number of uh, people who are recorded as uh, being homeless last month, a drop of 185, but there's still close to 9,000 people who are officially homeless in this uh, this country. That figure could be far higher if it had not been for the intervention of Threshold. You'd have heard yesterday about how Threshold intervened in uh, the cases of some 905 households who were facing homelessness. Uh, That's over 1,200 adults and over 700 children, close on 2,000 people over a three-month period. Let's speak uh, to John Mark McCafferty, who's uh, the chief executive of uh, the housing charity Threshold. Good morning, John Mark, and thanks for joining us on the programme, as always. It's a a staggering amount of uh, people, uh, an awful lot of work that you're doing, obviously, to intervene in so many cases, Uh, and I'm sure each household has a, a different story. Yes, so uh, this um, impact report, Michael, is uh, one of a number of ones we've done for each quarter of the year. So this one uh, charts October, November, December of last year. Um, And in that, we saw that we we prevented um, 1,985 people, so just over 900 households, 900 families, from entering homelessness um, in that last quarter of last year. And that is an increase of um, 16% on the same period, our actions in the same period in 2020. 
Um, and during that time, we also responded to over 11,000 uh, calls to the helpline across across the country. Um, and what we were preventing there was homelessness by virtue of uh, notices of termination by landlords. We challenged those invalid notices. We also challenged invalid rent increases where um, that rent increase might have uh, meant the end of a tenancy because of a lack of affordability. We also assisted um, private renters to resolve rent arrears that they had. They may have built them up during the the COVID time and and, uh, during a a loss of income as a result. Um, And we found that um, over 1,800 um, additional households were also identified as at risk of of homelessness um, during that time. And that's, again, a 14% increase on the number of risk of the same period last year. So there's increased pressure on the last three months of last year compared to the same period in 2020, which points to a number of things that, you know, the continued lack of um, uh, private rented accommodation. Um, you only have to look at daftermyhome.ie just to, sh- just to see how few houses are available to rent um, in uh, areas, you know, and you, you look at anywhere across the northeast and Dublin, um, there's just very, very little even in the cities and, and, and in the commuter towns. Yeah. Um, so that is a real, uh, real challenge there. There's also an issue in relation to the number of small-scale uh, landlords that are leaving the sector for a number of reasons. Um, a lot of it is to do with the fact that um, house sales, uh, as we know, are, are very lucrative right now. So some are selling because the, the, the price is very, very favourable for them. Um, and um, what we're looking for uh, there uh, are tax um, measures to uh, ensure that um, fewer landlords leave the market, smaller landlords, because while we do have bigger landlords entering, they generally aren't housing people who are on middle to, to lower incomes. Um, and they are the, the majority of people who come to Threshold for advice and support and assistance and advocacy. Okay, uh, and it will change in time that when a landlord decides to sell up uh, there will be life tenancy for uh, those who are, are renting so the house will be sold uh, to a new landlord uh, as such but that's not the situation at the moment if a landlord is selling they can ask people to move out and that would be considered to be a valid notice of termination uh, you said that there were a number of notice of terminations uh, that were invalid uh, why were they invalid uh, what mistakes uh, were being made in that sense uh, because uh, this this is when people are being asked to leave or they're being evicted uh, and obviously the renter, the tenant has rights uh, and those rights were being breached. Yeah, so in those invalid notices both for, for termination and, and for rent increases, there would have been um, inconsistencies or, or inaccuracies in those letters of validation or the the notice well, didn't come in a letter, it may have come in a text message or something um, or indeed if it was in a letter, um, the, the incorrect notice period was given um, or the the reason for the ending of the tenancy wasn't sufficient according to the legislation. Um, and likewise, in terms of those invalid rent increases, again, the rent increase might not have been valid. It may, may not have been, it may have been way above the um, the legislation for, uh, you know, the, the 2%, you know, the maximum 2% increase um, for, for rent if they were designated a rent pressure zone. So it's where uh, the landlord was um, giving kind of inaccurate information on those on those notices or, or non-compliant uh, information uh, as regards the Residential Tenancies Act. Um, so they are kind of uh, uh, constant issues. I mean, I suppose uh, one thing that strikes us is, is that, you know, um, 
53% of the, of the rent reviews um, and during the period we found to be invalid. So the, the reviews that were given by uh, landlords to tenants, so that's over half. Um, and it clearly also points to the need for a, a dwelling-specific rent register so that um, tenants um, can compare prices in their locality and that mm. they can... They can. They themselves can challenge uh, assertions made. Yeah, I take it. I take it. Tenants, uh, tenants are, are, are uh, fairly wise uh, in terms of, of the rights, uh, and then they're coming to you uh, to assist them uh, in fighting uh, what uh, appears uh, to be invalid or uh, not legally permissible. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so I mean, um, it, it's often that a tenant knows there's something not quite right. Uh, but the, I guess the residential tenancies acts are very complex. There's, there's, there've been a lot of amendments recently, a lot of changes. So um, it takes, um, I guess, a specialist in the form of the advisors that work for Threshold to be able to uh, provide that tailored advice for um, uh, families and for individuals who are in the private rented sector. And the advice may be for something you know relatively small, relatively mm-hmm. benign, or it could be. Um, to do with something more complex and involved or indeed where the, their entire tenancy is at risk or there's a number of fact forces and factors at play. And I guess one of those factors also that we that kind of um, stuck out for us really in, in uh, both uh, in the last quarter was the uh, issues of standards and repairs. Um, there was indeed a 30% increase in the number of private renters who were coming to us um, look in, in relation to standards and repairs, poor standards. And in that, um, over a third of those queries to do with standards and repairs to threshold were about damp and mould. So you can imagine, you know, we're, mm-hmm. we're, as we're coming out of winter, uh, you know, um, to have that in the cold and the damp, to, to have a cold and damp home if people are, are living and working uh, from home as well mm-hmm. and, and they have to kind of uh, live in those circumstances. They, they have big impacts on children and big big impacts on people's respiratory health and um on their mental health as well, if you're living in those environments. Okay. So we, we were, we are also and have been pushing for an NCT for housing to ensure uh, private rental uh, properties meet minimum standards. Um, other issues were poor heating and also structural deficiencies, and, and we've heard a lot about um, defects recently, yeah. um, and the the occur in people's private rented um, housing as well as owner occupied housing. Okay, so, are, are all the, are, are all those areas now covered by HAP inspections? They are covered um, for, I suppose, the properties that are eligible for HAP, yes, but not not all uh, properties are, are covered by HAP. Okay. So yeah. that is one um, level of, of uh, probity into the issue of standards and repairs, and it's important that places that are being subsidised by the state through the housing assistance payment are checked for the physical standards. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess where um, you get into kind of uh, more complex issues is, is where the, they might pass um, the, the standards as, as set out, but there's nothing there about um, cold homes, you know, mm. uh, there's nothing there about, you know, a low BER rating, it's just that they have to have a BER rating, so it could be just incredibly poor, poor homes with, with poor heating and expensive heating, okay. and especially now um, with the cost of energy, um, that is a, an ongoing issue. And HAP inspections won't directly address that. They will um, look at kind of um, 
standards and um, issues in the rounds, but mm. those standards issues um, can be fairly general. Um, and really, what we need is something which is kind of uh, linking in things like um, energy efficiency. Um, Damp and mould clearly are, are un, unacceptable. Um, but as I say, many uh, houses that aren't, um, if you like, funded by uh, the housing assistance payment, okay. by the HAP payment, they will go undetected. And there are situations mm. uh, where people really are um, uh, suffering um, because um, the, the, the damp and mould in, in one's rented housing um, can exacerbate things like asthma. Um, and, and other diseases. Okay. People. All right. Uh, a, a lot of problems there. Uh, a, a lot of solutions from a Threshold or with the help of a Threshold uh, for people who faced into those problems and managed to stay uh, in the rented accommodation. Close on 2,000 people over three months. It's an incredible statistic. Thanks for joining us. John Mark McCarthy, Chief Executive of Threshold there. Now, if uh, you have a, a loved one or friend in a nursing home, uh, you'll be delighted, I'm sure, to hear uh, there will be a relaxation of of uh, restrictions uh, that is uh, to come into effect from next week. Sarah Lennon, Executive uh, Director with Sage Advocacy, is on the line. Good morning to you, Sarah, and thanks uh, for joining us. I'm sure you welcome uh, the new guidelines. Uh, it's been a long couple of years for everybody. Good morning, Michael. Yes, I think that it's very welcome um, that these new guidelines will be implemented on February the 8th. Um, I think, you know, while we're not obviously fully back to, none of us are fully back to what we would consider normal. This is a very significant stride forward and, and, and should be really welcomed, I think, by everyone who lives in a, in a nursing home or indeed has a loved one in a nursing home. Okay, talk us through the changes, if you would, please. So I think that the big the big changes um, are, it really does respond to what's going on generally around social restrictions. Um, there should be no uh, feeling um, on access to so visits um, once the, the nursing home's in a position to, to, to manage those, um, th- there's a removal of the requirement to have a, a COVID vaccination certificate, for example. Um, and there's also um, removal of restrictions um, once a nursing home resident leaves and they come back, they don't have to restrict their movements as well. Um, and I think the, the really big change is that um, there will be a, well, a nominated support person. So that will be um, an individual that the nursing home resident would nominate um, who would have, uh, you know, virtually unrestricted access to that person and would be maybe the person they trust the most um, that they can have when, whenever they need them. Quite often their husband or, or wife, uh, not always, of course, but quite often uh, and very important uh, that couples like that uh, can spend as much time uh, as uh, they wish with each other. So that will be very welcome. It really will, yeah. And I, and I think, um, you know, it's something that I, I know a lot a lot of other countries have, have brought this in with great success as well. So I think that it will be, you know, for, for people, going to a nursing home is, is extremely traumatic, even though the environment mm. might be perfectly lovely, um, to be, I suppose, taken apart from your, your own environment and, and indeed your loved one, your partner perhaps. Um, so this will, I suppose, provide some, some comfort um, okay. in that situation. So one person should be able to go in and out as they please. What, what about the rest of uh, the family or other people for that matter? Yeah, and I think that's important because I know sometimes having say one nominated person, if there's no spouse, they you know they they've they've maybe already died, for example, and um, there might be several siblings, and there might be some I suppose family family conflict around picking that one nominated support person. But it, it is in addition to, not instead of visitors. So that's very important that that even if you are not the nominated support person, you still should have um, you know very regular. And visits daily um, by up to two people at any time. So 
that's a, a significant step forward as well. Okay. We're living with COVID now uh, and it's a whole lot better than it was uh, a few weeks ago uh, and this is a very welcome change, there's no doubt. Uh, but COVID uh, continues to be in the community. What if COVID gets into a nursing home? What then? We do, yeah, we do have to say that because, you know, we can't forget the, the, the impact and we have seen an, an increasing amount of outbreaks uh, through the Omicron um, variant but not the same level of harm, um, still still illness and, and death, unfortunately, but not the same level of harm as previous variants. And I think, you know, there's two things to say. One is that the, these guidelines do say that visiting should be facilitated, even if there's an outbreak in the nursing home at a minimum level. And I think that's really important that there's a floor maintained. But also that, to, to be fair to the HSE and the HPSC, they've, they've worked diligently on these guidelines mm. throughout the pandemic. They've always responded to what's currently happening. Um, this is the best uh, advice that could be provided to people right now where we are. But but we know, we're confident that if, if there was another variant or things were to disimprove, that the you know, appropriate guidelines would be brought in that, you know, maybe moves more towards protecting the residents for a period of time. So yeah. I think that we need to just be mindful of, of I suppose, not, not throwing off the shackles completely just yet. We are... I suppose hopefully only on a you know the last leg of this, but mm. um, nonetheless we're not fully out of the woods yet. Yeah, but it's really a huge step forward. My God, it's so different to what everybody has had to endure over the last couple of years. But as you say, it's guidance. These are guidelines from the HSE to the nursing homes. What onus is there on the nursing homes to follow these guidelines? And that's been our concern, I suppose, throughout the pandemic. And um, you know, Sage Advocacy works with nursing homes the length and breadth of the country, and the vast majority of them, you know, great many of them recognise the importance of visits and access to the overall health and well-being of their residents and, and have wanted this day themselves. So we know that for a lot of nursing homes, this will be very encouraging for them. But unfortunately, we have had reports from some nursing homes that have implemented things differently, not in line with the guidance. And so we would, I suppose, encourage them to I suppose, see the benefit really here for everybody that we get back to normal um, but we would, I suppose, also encourage you know any family members or residents having difficulty to to contact Sage Advocacy, and we can we can give you a bit of a steer maybe on on how you can approach um, communicating with the, the nursing home around what oh, right. actually says. Yeah, well, that would be great, I'm sure, uh, because uh, people don't like to cause trouble, Sarah, uh, or don't want to be seen that way, especially uh, in nursing home settings like that where everybody I think is trying their best so uh, I'm sure people would be very happy to know that they can make contact with you and uh, as you say you'd give them a steer uh, tell us how to do that yeah so you can contact us on 01-536-7330 that's 01-536-7330 and all our contact details are on our website, sageadvocacy.ie. All right, and we can put people in touch with you as well if uh, they didn't get that number. But thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Sarah Lennon is Executive Director with Sage Advocacy Ireland. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Time now, as is usual, around this time on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a number of incidents uh, which Gardaí are investigating locally. Perhaps you can assist with uh, those investigations. Garda Olga Bacon of Trim Garda Station joins us for the report this week. And good morning to you and thanks uh, for joining us. So unfortunately, we're going to start uh, with a tragedy and uh, an appeal for information in relation to some fatal road traffic collisions. Yes, Michael. Um, Guardian Navin are appealing for witnesses to a fatal road traffic collision which occurred in the Knock Common area on Tuesday night, the 25th of January. The collision, which involved a single vehicle, occurred on the L 
5068, so that's in the vicinity of Knock Common Cemetery, at around 11pm. The driver and the sole occupant of the vehicle, a 29-year-old man, suffered fatal injuries. So we're looking for any witnesses or drivers who may have dash cam footage to contact Navangar, the station, on 46 9930 Okay, and uh, we've a second uh, fatal road traffic collision, I think. Yes, so this occurred in Ashburn. So our colleagues in Ashburn are appealing for witnesses to um, the second fatal road traffic collision. And again, involved in a single vehicle which occurred at Krushrath in Donor on Wednesday the 26th of January. At approximately 8.30pm, Gardaí responded to a report of a car which had overturned. The driver, again a sole occupant of the vehicle, a male in his 40s, suffered fatal injuries. So again, we're looking for any witnesses or anybody in the area who has dash cam footage contact Ashburn Garda Station on 01 uh, Tragic week on local roads. Let's uh, talk uh, about uh, some of uh, the other crimes uh, that Garda are investigating locally uh, this week. Uh, we're going to RD for a report of a burglary. Yes, the occupants of a house returned home at 7.30pm on Wednesday the 26th of January to find that their home had been ransacked we believe that the suspect or suspects got in through the rear of the property. If you're in the area during the day and notice anything suspicious, we're asking you to contact Gardaí at RD Garda Station on 041 uh, Another burglary. Uh, this one occurred in Athboy. Yes, so Kel Gardaí are investigating that burglary. That happened sometime between Friday evening of the 28th of January to Sunday morning the 30th. And that happened on Comic Street. Connock Street in Athboy and again if you saw anything suspicious over the weekend or you can help in any way to identify the suspects you're asked to contact Kelsgarda station on 046 Some criminal damage in Dundalk to report on next. Yeah a number of cars were damaged late Sunday night the 29th of January in and around Seatown Place in Dundalk If you're in the area and notice anything at all suspicious please contact Gardaí at Dundalk Garda station on 042 9388400. And we stay in Dundalk uh, for a uh, report of a stolen vehicle. Yes, and quite frightening for the injured parties, Michael. Our colleagues in Dundalk are investigating an incident where a car was stolen at Knife Point near Dundalk Stadium on the Racecourse Road on Friday, the 28th of January, between half six and a quarter to seven in the evening. The owners of the car were threatened with a knife before a man made their, his getaway in their car. A second man left the scene in a separate car. If you were in the area and saw anything that could help Gardaí with this investigation, you're asked to contact Dundalk Garda Station on 042-9388-400. Frightening indeed. Uh, dangerous people involved. Uh, I'm sure people uh, will give information if uh, they can. Uh, we've uh, some good news uh, to report on next, uh, following some items that were stolen from vehicles in Gormanston. Yes, yeah, so a lengthy car, um, investigation was carried out by our colleagues in Ashburn Garda Station and detectives in uniform Garda carried out a search in North Dublin. One man was arrested and taken to Ashburn Garda Station where he was detained and this man was interviewed in relation to over 40 incidents. After this interview, he was charged in relation to a number of thefts and was taken in custody and appeared before Dublin District Court. Okay. So, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, just a good result there and yeah, it's good okay. for people to know that 
People Absol- are being brought before the court. Absolutely. I'm sure people will be delighted to hear that, particularly those uh, people uh, who suffered uh, in Gormanston. Now, uh, some uh, 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 an appeal to people uh, about uh, what could be life-saving um, behaviour. Absolutely, Michael. So we're blessed to have a beautiful coastline and inland waterways here in Louth and Mead. If you're out walking along any of our waterways, please report any damaged or missing ring boys or if you see anybody interfering with them. They're a vital piece of life-saving and equipment. So it's important that it's there and available in the case of an emergency. So you can notify ourselves on 999 or local guard stations or Water Safety Ireland. Water Safety Ireland will go out and replace um, ring boys that are missing. Okay. We've run out of time, but we leave it there. And thank you indeed. We'll return to the Garda Crime Desk in around the same time on next Tuesday's programme. With thanks today to Garda Olga Bacon of Trim Garda Station. That's our programme for today. And God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now michael at lmfm.ie. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.